The following program may contain explicit language. It's Wednesday, July 1st, 2020. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Mark McCloskey, the Missourian with an AR-15 tucked in polo shirt and Montgomery Burns level taste in home decor. You know him. He's the man who yelled at and gestured towards marchers who were walking past his Missouri home. Past his home, we should note. His wife was also there. She was waving around a firearm like a McMansion Yosemite Sam. Well, McCloskey, along with his lawyer, was on Chris Cuomo's CNN show last night. He explained himself this way. I was a person scared for my life who was protecting my wife, my home, my hearth, my livelihood. I was a victim of a mob that came through the gate. I didn't care what color they were. I didn't care what their motivation was. I was frightened. I was assaulted and I was in imminent fear that they would run me over, kill me, burn my house. And you have to have this in the context of St. Louis, where on June the 2nd of this year, I watched the city burn. I watched the 7-Eleven get smashed in, looted and burned for 40 minutes on live television. Okay, interesting invocation of hearth and assault there. There was no assault unless he means threatened, which in some jurisdictions count as assault. Now, I understand being scared. If you're a rich person who lives in a huge house on a private street and protesters start walking by, you might be scared. Fear, of course, can be rational or irrational. The mind can convince itself that one's personal Frick Museum meets monastery is a domicile like a 7-Eleven or a domicile unlike a 7-Eleven. I mean, one serves pheasant under glass, the other rotating hot dogs under glass. Even the McCloskey's attorney, Al Watkins, concedes it really is quite a palatial palazzo. You couldn't have gone to Central Casting and said, find a more elegant home which will demonstrate white entitlement. You know, I've read about the McCloskey's art collection, their interiors, their decorating choices, and I think maybe this whole thing was an attempt at viral marketing. We got to check Zillow to see if the McCloskey manse is listed soon. But if not, what it seems like is a brazen and truly foolish act. Because the point isn't whether it was a legal act. It was. It seems to be, at least. The question is, was it a smart act? Now, McCloskey thinks so. He seems pretty proud of himself. And the right thinks so. But I think not. Because the question I would like to ask McCloskey is, if this was such a good choice... Why has no one else in America done it in front of their homes? I mean, I guess you could say maybe someone has. It just wasn't captured and disseminated on film. I mean, that's possible. But you have to think, with everyone in America owning a cell phone, and with all the Black Lives Matter protesters out in the streets precisely because citizens had cell phones, and because the motivation of a gun owner standing on his front lawn brandishing a firearm is specifically to be seen, I think it's quite reasonable to say that Mark McCloskey is the only one who did this. I'm not talking about protecting stores in areas where looting was going on. I'm talking about a homeowner going in front of his home as a march passes by. Millions of Americans have had the ability to do that. I mean that literally. I mean, I think about New York City alone. Marchers went down the main streets and the side streets and so many streets. There had to have been millions of residences that were passed by marchers in New York City. Throughout America, the same is true. Hundreds and hundreds of cities saw protests and marches, and some went to parks, and some went to the mayor's front lawn, but many went through residential streets. So it has to be the case that millions of homeowners had marchers walk past 
And since we're in America, it also has to be the case that probably hundreds of thousands, maybe also millions of gun-owning homeowners had marchers walk right past them. And McCloskey is the only one who came out and waved a gun at those marchers. So I got to wonder, if this is such a sharp, well-thought-out, considered move, why has no one else done it? Mark McCluskey doesn't seem like a stupid man. He is a lawyer. He has, let us say, bold taste in the works of the old masters. And by old masters, I mean artists, not literally. Anyway, I think he is enjoying his renown slash notoriety. But I also think that if he actually used his rifle that day, his life would have been ruined. And he has to know this. His life would be ruined, and that says nothing about the life of the person he would have used it on, because I don't think Mark McCluskey does think too much of those lives. I hope the next Mark McCluskey, a man with worse taste in art, an untucked, possibly even uncollared shirt, and an itchier trigger finger, hasn't been watching how the current Mark McCluskey has been feted and valorized by the right. But I fear that that guy is out there, and he has been watching and I fear the consequences. On the show today, I spiel about bullshitting. It's not an is this bullshit, or maybe it is. It's kind of the biggest is this bullshit ever. Is this bullshit entire society edition, and Donald Trump's right at the center. But first, John McWhorter is a Columbia professor of linguistics and also a Slate podcast host, Lexicon Valley. I wanted to talk about the language behind notions of white supremacy, bigotry, prejudice, and racism. You know, the big stuff, through a lens of words. John McWhorter is up next. Do you think we should defund the police because of America's systemic racism? embodied as it is in a culture of white supremacy? Well, before you can answer that question or even think about it, there are three terms in there whose definitions have changed wildly over the last, I don't know, five to 10 years. Who better to talk about this than John McWhorter, who teaches linguistics at Columbia and hosts Lexicon Valley at Slate, this very Slate, and is a contributing editor at The Atlantic. Thanks for coming on, John. My pleasure, Mike. Great to be here. So, Let's talk about the definition of racism, literally the dictionary definition. The dictionary, of course, exists to describe how words are used, but Merriam-Webster's updated the definition, and I've read that you support this change. I read this column that you wrote because this is widely used. It's how racism is being used now, and that's all the dictionary is there for, to tell you how it's being used. Yeah, and it's interesting. I have... um you never know what you're going to get hate mail for. Some earnest person wrote me this screed this morning saying that I'm a racist. And, and I'm sure he looked me up and you know saw that I'm black. He thought that my point was political, that I was arguing that you know racism definitely is society-wide. He thought I was being Ibram Kendi and that I thought that the dictionary ought to get with these politics. So he he. he read it that way. Whereas what I was trying to say is simply that however you feel about the felicity of it, that is the way racism is used today. It's not about Archie Bunker's prejudice. A great many people use racism to mean the state of a society and how resources are allocated, how people are faring with a tacit 
understanding that the reason for a discrepancy between, say, whites and blacks is due to something that's unfair. And it might not be person-to-person racism or anything that sinister, but that the society is in a racist configuration. And I think we all understand that on a certain level. You couldn't read anything by Ta-Nehisi Coates or Ibram Kendi or Robin D'Angelo without understanding that racism no longer means what somebody meant by prejudice in 1955. And if that's the case, if part of growing up is learning that racism is not only somebody using the N-word, then it's got to be in the dictionary because that's how the language is used. It doesn't matter how my... You know, my hater feels about people using it that way. It has to be in the dictionary. So that was my point about racism. And to be quite honest, I find it a rather frustrating word in that there are always going to be many people who don't agree that something we call prejudice or bigotry or racism is responsible for various discrepancies in society. And I openly say that I am somebody who does not agree that all of those discrepancies are due to something we would intuitively call prejudice, bigotry, or racism in any sense. It's something that has to be taught carefully. You have to work to understand what people mean by that. And so, kind of like defund, it can impede communication, what a wide range racism has taken on. Nevertheless, nobody cares what I think about it. We have to actually document the facts of it, and that's what the facts are. Agree. I agree with that, absolutely. But let's consider, you and I right here, some of the implications of that. So it was a tenet of progressive thought, I don't know, 30, 40 years ago, to define racism as something close to bigotry. And then I perceive what happened is that If you look how the word racism evolved, people, often in the academy, critical race theorists, defined racism to be something more than just racial animus, or even something different from racial animus. I think it was a political maneuver. I don't mean that pejoratively. They were helping us to think of racism in a different way or helping themselves by expanding the definition. Anyway, it worked, and racism became more of an umbrella term. But if the layperson's thinking of racism is still rooted in the notion of bigotry, the notion of vileness and evilness, then it wouldn't be as appealing to those who are pushing for this bigger umbrella definition, which essentially is accusing all of society as being racist or defining our entire society as white supremacist. So, John, what I'm saying is that the people who defined racism as broader and broader and broader than the original terms could have used a different term. But the reason they didn't was that they were specifically pointing a finger at society and saying there is something wrong with what all of society is doing. It was a tactic. That is my sense of how this word, not just racism, but also white supremacy, how the words evolved. Yeah, I have had the same feeling. And it was 30, 35 years ago in particular, one learned that you're not supposed to think, why are black people still upset when there's no such thing as formal segregation, when it's socially prescribed to say mean things to black people, when the world is so different than it was in 1950. And what you were supposed to understand is that it may not be as much about face-to-face racism anymore, but there is something broader called institutional racism or societal racism. And I must admit that 
you know, the horse is out of the barn. You can't get rid of those terms. I always worried about those terms because they imply that the solutions are going to be similar to the ones that you use to change people's feelings. And so you teach people that black people are white people's equals and you know, they at least pretend to believe it. You don't use the N-word. For example, I'm not saying the word here in the media that if you know, there were no microphone, I would just say it to refer to it. And so all of these things happen. But if you call society racist, it seems as if the solutions you're going to look for are going to be based on still policing feelings, as opposed to a different and often more mundane kind of work involved in changing structures that promulgate inequality. And there are definitely those things, and maybe bigotry can play a part within them. But I think that sometimes the use of those terms muddies what actual constructive political approaches would be out of an idea that what you're fighting is something that's a bigot. And of course, you're not thinking that literally, but it's, it's there. And so you have the same resentment that you would have against the Archie Bunker or the Donald Trump against a society, when the society is really, you know, mostly a bunch of ants, you know, kind of going around and doing what they're doing and not really thinking much about sociology at all. So yeah, it's a, I'll openly say it's a, it's a rather clumsy usage, and I've written about it. I, I don't think it's ideal, and I kind of wish, as I wrote in The Atlantic, that maybe we would keep that word racism for what we refer to it as now, that's okay, and then start referring to face-to-face -face racism as prejudice again, because really the two things may have a relationship, but they're different, and a society cannot be prejudiced. You know, nobody would have used prejudice in that way. It's racism that lends itself to that splotch of a usage. But yeah, it's a, it's a tough one. And I remember as a college student learning, it's not about Archie Bunker. There's something larger. And it actually goes back to the late 60s, but I learned of it in the 80s when I was in college. Similarly, I'm a little confused or I sympathize with the sort of person who hears that I don't know, let's not say Donald Trump, let's say Jeb Bush engages in white supremacy or the Republican Party is a white supremacist party. And I would think for the vast majority of Americans, white supremacy for years and years was branded as just a more multisyllabic way of saying essentially a Klansman. They were white supremacists. And then when you brand m much of society, all of society, like large swaths of society as this, Two things. I wonder if it's by design. It's to implicate what we thought of as not horrible racists as being just as horrible as the people who wear the Klan's robe. But the second thing is, is language doing us a favor? Is language serving the people who hear it and speak it when the word white supremacy has so changed and I would say is probably so confusing to the average American? Yeah, what's going on there is the treadmill. And you could have predicted that around the 2000 teens there would be a term like white supremacy. You and I hear it and we hear people tossing around this term that you associate with lynchings and the Klan and it seems rather extreme, but really all that's going on is that when you have potent terms like say prejudiced and bigoted, and it's the kind of term that creates a kind of re resistance from the other side, then what happens is it loses its sting. 
There are too many people who are fighting against it, and so it stops being as rhetorically effective. And so prejudiced became a term that started to sound a little antique. You know, there's a reason why today we think of, you know, Lyndon Johnson with a pen in his hand. You needed something else. And so it was around 1970 that racist became the term of art. And if somebody your age or my age looks back, if you squint and you think about conversations in, say, the 1980s, racist was more potent then than it is now. You know, now you have cartoon characters referring to racism. Not to be racist, but that would have been unthinkable in 1982. Racism was like, whoa. And it was because it replaced prejudice. But time goes by, and there are people who question, you know, what we mean by racism, who don't want to be called racist. And so next comes white supremacy. And it has a rhetorical sting now. All anybody has to do is say it, and it can silence the room. It makes the other half of the room clap. That's the way these things are. However, everybody should know that 20 years from now, white supremacist is going to sound like one clump. People aren't even going to hear the white part in it anymore. And then there's going to have to be a new term. It's just like chauvinist. Why, you're just a male chauvinist pig, somebody would say. You know, that documentary Mrs. America is interesting in showing that era. Well, he's just a chauvinist. That now sounds like fondue. Sexist came in as the new word. Sexist is going to be replaced by something else, I'm quite sure. This is how these things go. White supremacist the way it started being used in about 2014, it shocked me at first. I thought, why are people dredging up that hideous term for something some administrator says in a meeting and didn't even mean to? How's that white supremacist? How is poor Mark Lilla, my colleague at Columbia, who is much, much smarter than I am, and he writes a short and tart manifesto about how the left can regain power. And Catherine Frank, the law professor call at Columbia, calls him a white supremacist. I remember thinking at the time, where in hell is this coming from? But all it is is that racist is no longer as strong as one might prefer it to be. And I'm not criticizing people for this, because we all do this on all sides of the political spectrum. But that's why you're hearing that term. So... Isn't it the case that, and that, by the way, as a linguist, you know, any question phrase in the negative is rhetorical, but isn't it the case that Ibram Kendi, whose 3.0 definition of the word racism is essentially being codified in the dictionary, he was engaged in an argument. Good, I say, have an argument. And his argument was, that's not racism, this is racism. Here's my definition of racism. By putting it in the dictionary, are we saying he won the argument? And, and by implication, then winning the argument is what? Just convincing enough people to use your term? And if that's the case, how about all these right-wing Sean Hannity shows who would define patriotism as, say, a supporter of the Iraq war? Is there any chance they could win the argument and we get a definition of patriotism that says that uh, is supportive of American military expeditions overseas? (laughs) That's a good question. Because you put in Ibram Kendi's sort of racism 3.0 in the dictionary, and it's not just him. You know, there have been people in the academy and somewhat beyond who have used racism in that way for at least 20 years, but he and a couple of other people and our moment have made it so that that way of referring to racism is common enough It's common coin enough that you want to put it in the dictionary as representing at least what a representative body of people mean. I don't think it necessarily means that that's what the word now means to everybody. It's just that enough people use it that way that it's going to get into the dictionary. Now, you talk about patriotism and whether that Fox News kind of definition of patriotism would ever make it into the dictionary. And you make me think because the truth is 
even if that kind of definition really took hold, and you know, frankly, it has among watchers and listeners of that kind of media. I don't know if he still does it, but Sean Hannity, every call, he would say, you're a great patriot, and then the caller would say, you're a great patriot. It was a church-like call and response. And you know, that is less likely to make it into dictionaries. And I say that with great respect for lexicographers. I know a lot of them, but my horse sense is that definitions that become widespread among what is conventionally considered the intelligentsia would be more likely to make it in than the sort of thing that Sean Hannity is saying, despite the fact that I think that you could say a critical mass of people think of patriot meaning that such that it could be one of the definitions of patriot in the dictionary. But lexicographers are educated people. Educated people tend to lean left, especially academics. And so there's there's some of that. I don't think dictionaries are hotly politicized. But yeah, it's more likely that Ibram Kendi is going to influence the dictionary than Sean Hannity. I think that's a fair statement. <laughs> I think that might be a good thing, too. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And that is John McWhorter, Columbia professor, host of Lexicon Valley. But the conversation is not over. It continues tomorrow as we talk about defund the police, the idea, but really the term, the future of all these terms comes up as well. Join us tomorrow with John on this podcast. And now the spiel. You know the expression, don't bullshit a bullshitter? I think it's bullshit. As a student of, and if not an expert in, then a connoisseur of bullshit, what I think that it gets wrong is that it is usually said by a bullshitter himself, himself, mostly himself, and therefore it estimates the bullshitter's ability to detect bullshit. Soon, I shall bring this guy into the argument. And I think we're going to be very good with the coronavirus. I think that at some point uh, that's going to sort of just disappear, I hope. That was President Trump months ago before anyone could have reasonably known that, oh no, that was Donald Trump today. Okay, so don't bullshit a bullshitter. Said by bullshitters who elevate their own ability not only to project but detect bullshitting. I think that bullshitters are bullshitting themselves in general. But here is how I think this is important in terms of America today and Trump and the election and even a bigger question of how much media gatekeepers need to protect people from the consequences of bullshit. So first, Donald Trump is hurting in the polls. He is less popular than he has been in a long while, though not all time. He is less likely to win the election based on polls and based on betting markets than he has been at any point during his presidency. I think the reason for this is that some people, people once considered squarely in Trump's base, have defected. The New York Times had a good article today on the very small sliver of Trump voters from 2016 who say, never again. It is a small sliver, but his margin of victory in key swing states was even smaller than that sliver, so they're really significant. Here are some quotes from the article. Coronavirus also changed the mind of Ariel Oakley, 29, who works in human resources in Grand Rapids, Michigan. With coronavirus, even just watching the press conferences, having him come out and say it's all fake, she said, I have family who have unfortunately passed away from it. Times also quotes a guy named John Crilly, who says, what changed my mind? 120,000 deaths. He, meaning Trump, refused to realize, oh my God, there's a virus coming our way. Shouldn't we do something, guys? COVID was the turning point. It's the thing that touches home with everybody. So you see what's going on here? America, or at least enough of America, was fine with the bullshitter-in-chief when everything was bullshit. 
Now, of course, you and I know that it was never a time that everything was bullshit. Income inequality was a bullshit. The environment was a bullshit. And trade deals weren't bullshit. International relations weren't bullshit. Immigration wasn't bullshit. They're important. They weren't bullshit. But a lot of voters, to them, they weren't pressing. They weren't salient. They were far from the most important things. They couldn't be paid that much attention to. So when you have a president or a candidate for president who just wanted to be the clown or the court jester, who wanted to get that top job because then we definitely have to always think about what he's saying and pay attention to him. It sets up nicely for a bullshitter. And for some time, the bullshit didn't catch up with Donald Trump because enough people thought that bullshit was the defining feature of politics, the defining feature of America today. Then came the coronavirus. And more and more people said, well, now, this is serious. But the president never changed his tune. He never acknowledged it was serious. He still doesn't. Because as a bullshitter to his core, he can only bullshit, which is fine when it's all bullshit. But clearly now, it's not all bullshit. And when I say clearly, I, of course, mean to everyone but the legion of Trump's most loyal supporters who still think coronavirus is bullshit. Now, a small faction of Trump voters love the tax cuts or wanted the, I don't know, Israeli embassy changed or some real thing that maybe he delivered on. But mostly, they think, you know what? It's all bullshit. And they were fine with Trump because he essentially thought so too. Now, this here is the media part. This is why televising Trump's coronavirus press conferences were key to his undoing. Because when Trump was given a huge platform by everyone covering the 2016 election, and when the platform allowed him to bullshit about Hillary's emails or making America great again, so many people watching enjoyed it and said, this guy is calling bullshit on bullshit. But when given the same megaphone, And he acted the same and used the same arguments and essentially bullshitted his way through. Well, that appalled people. He didn't change. Cable News' desire to cover him didn't change. All that changed was people's opinion about the reality of the most important issues that he was talking about. It stopped being bullshit. By the way, this is also why the Mueller investigation and impeachment did not hurt Trump. People, his people, enough people, never moved out of the category, you know what, this is all bullshit. Today on Fox, Trump said this about the revelations that Russians placed bounties on U.S. service members. We never heard about it because intelligence never found it to be uh, of of that level where it would rise to that when you bring something into, into a president, and I see many, many things, and I'm sure I don't see many things that they don't think rose to the occasion. This didn't rise to the occasion. And from what I hear, and I hear it pretty good, uh, the intelligence people didn't even, many of them didn't believe it happened at all. Unedited Donald Trump there, his brain perhaps not rising to the occasion. Now I hear that and I say, oh my God, that's all bullshit. But so many American voters hear that and say, eh, it's all bullshit. Meaning, even this news, which you and I probably find appalling, this is the kind of news that doesn't affect the lives of most people, isn't something they tell themselves they need to pay attention to, and probably has some elements of media exaggeration in it. At least they figure they don't have time to delve too deeply in the story. They just put it in the category of, eh, probably the usual bullshit. 
But coronavirus is different. And by the way, for a lot of people, the polling shows the death of George Floyd was different also. Salient. Made it real. Colin Kaepernick kneeling now is bullshit. This guy actually dying? That's not bullshit. And just as you want a peacetime president in times of peace and a wartime president in times of war, many Americans would certainly accept a bullshit president in times of bullshit. But a bullshit president in times of deep and abiding seriousness, well, he'll probably be turned out by voters. As they say about the chance, make America great again and four more years, oh, ho now that is some bullshit. And that's it for today's show. We are now sponsored by a whole new security system, Hearth-only security. It's a new innovation. Why throw your money away on home when your hearth is equally exposed? All the hearth at half the price. Use promo code Palatial Palazzo. Palatial Palazzo. Palatial Palazzo. Umpru depru dupru. And thanks for listening. Hey, it's Enrico Palazzo. <laughs> <laughs>